to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 137 and 138. It begins with the Mariner climbing the side of the D's and ends with Deacon quieting the crowd. We left off last week with the Mariner climbing the side of the ship. We rejoin the clip with him doing more of the same. The first quarter of this clip is consumed by the mariner making his way up to the top of the ship and a couple things become apparent first of all i know we talked about it at the end ish of last week's episode the holes in the side of the ship Mm -hmm. in this clip we get a little bit of pulled back views of it and (laughs) it becomes clear that this is a purposeful ladder yep around it is relatively clear of these holes so this is a specific climbing spot yeah i really appreciated seeing that because it made me feel like i called it right (laughs) it's always nice (laughs) it was purposeful (laughs) yeah people notice hey you know that rick he's got some good ideas yeah he's got lots of good ideas part way up this climb though we see the mariner pause because he's starting to hear that there's a lot of commotion above him and maybe climbing endlessly is not the best idea he does and i love the sound here I don't generally pay attention very much to sound, but it really caught me as ethereal. Honestly, it sounded like he was climbing up the side of a ghost ship and there was a ghost party (laughs) on the ship with all the fog and the ocean is like eerily quiet and he's all alone. And the way that the voices faded in, it was very subtle and very unreal yeah it took a good few seconds to really understand what he was hearing that no it's just regular people up on deck it's wild to think of how sound works because sound is just pressure waves and so when the mariner is down at the waterline he's not going to hear a lot of this commotion because there's nothing to take those pressure waves and direct them down over the side of the ship Right. So it right. makes sense that he wouldn't even hear them until he was getting closer to the top. Yes. And also the D's is in its own fog bank. And fog also makes sound do funny things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's very odd. And I do like how he pauses to think about it. I don't know if he had the same thought process as I had where it came in kind of quietly and it sounded unreal. And then he slowly realized, I don't know, it's it's just people up there. I don't know if he had that thought process. But like you said before, at the very least, he had the thought process of, okay, don't just climb up there at speed. Take your time, scout things out. He knows now there are people up there. Yeah. And another benefit of him pausing is that we get to see 
the different spiky bits that the smokers have added to the outside edge of the D's. They have fortified it against borders. So you've got in certain sections big pieces of metal. In other sections, it looks like there's barbed wire. It sparks the imagination to say back when they were first starting out, there were probably large ship battles, massive structures floating into each other with throngs of crew chomping at the bit to take over the other vessel. Ooh, I've got this image in my head of classic pirate imagery and now replace tall ships with tankers and cruise liners <laughs> with gigantic ships. You could say replace the tall ships with taller ships. Yes. <laughs> We're cutting inside the Deacon's stateroom here. The Nord notes that the crowd outside is getting pretty ugly. The Deacon acknowledges this, but then putting on his jaunty cap <laughs> says, announce me, cousin. I want to focus really quick on this hat because I wanted to know more about it. It is a bicorn because it only has the two points to it. It is a historical form of hat widely adopted in the 1790s as an item of uniform worn by European and American military and naval officers. Most generals and staff officers of the Napoleonic period wore bicorns, and it survived as a widely worn full-dress headdress until the 1910s. The deacon adding that imagery seems both odd and not odd. <laughs> odd in the mixing of the time periods. He's got the Ds and the captain of the Ds as his deity. He also idolizes golf, golf courses, golf resorts as an ideal. And then he throws in the imagery of two centuries prior. Mm -hmm. There is absolutely a parallel to our own times where... Once you get out of our current modern era, looking backwards, it's hard for most people, people who don't study that era, to differentiate between, oh, this dress is from the Victorian era versus the Edwardian era. Show me a dress and I'm not sure I could tell you what era it was from. It seems really relatable that he doesn't realize that he's got a hat from the 1700s and a deity from the 1900s. Somewhere, there is a distinct non-zero possibility that there's someone listening who is utterly obsessed with Victorian and Edwardian dress and is screaming into their podcast listener, no, Julia, there's such an obvious difference between <laughs> these two. And hey, more power to them. Yeah, there are absolutely people who study those things, who know absolutely they can look at an object and know and tell you when it's from. But to lay people... No, like, not so. No, I could not tell you. As for this hat specifically, I was Googling the Deacon's hat from Waterworld, and this item showed up on worthpoint.com. A listing showed that the auction house Profiles in History tried to sell this hat along with the rest of the costume back in 2017. I say tried to sell because I found another listing on iCollector.com. This time, the hat was listed on its own, but I looked at the information on the page and the auction closed without the item being sold. And that was back oh. in December 19th, 2019. They were trying to get about $400 for it. Okay, I was going to ask about a bit. starting price. So $400 for movie memorabilia and it didn't go. 
This is an item that was worn by the actor on screen, so it's very recognizable. I have to wonder if the entire outfit sold, and so they decided to sell what they had left, or if the entire outfit didn't sell, and they decided to try piecemealing it out to sell it again. Right. I'm kind of surprised that a piece of memorabilia didn't sell at all. And so the doctor has come out of the deacon's stateroom, and he steps up to this microphone on the hand railing, and he says, hey, here he is. Rise up, brothers and sisters. Turn your eyes and open your hearts to your humble benefactor, your spiritual shepherd, and dictator for life. Yeah, that's quite a list. I like that they start off pretty good. Okay, humble benefactor, cool. He is the humble person who provides them with everything they need. Shelter, food, water. He's the guy that it all flows from. He is their spiritual shepherd. They listen to him. He is their deacon. And then dictator for life seems a little slid in there at the end. Right. Like, I'm going to distract you with the good stuff and then slide it in. And you're still going to agree with the thing as a whole. Like just, to, just so you don't forget. He's your dictator. Dictator for life. Yeah. Something I really appreciate about this shot that is not in the dialogue is how you see the mariner climbing up the side of the ship and then you've got a pipe that passes in front of him. So between the subject and the camera, there goes the pipe. And it's a sly little wipe transition. So Kevin Costner isn't actually hanging over the side of this precipice that they made it look like. He could be a foot and a half off the ground, if that. But because they used that in-camera wipe, they hit a transition. They hit a That cut. is excellent. Yeah. That was amazing. I didn't even notice it. And I think that pipe really shouldn't be there. No. Now that I've noticed it, we got a decent view of the side of the ship. And we could see the top of it a little further down than where the Mariner was climbing. We could see the top of it. And there was no big, gigantic pipe mm -hmm. anywhere near the side of it. So, yeah, that's not really supposed to be there. But It's a magic pipe. Yeah, it is. It's the same thing with the fog. As soon as it's not needed anymore, it disappears. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I also appreciate how the makeup department is making sure that the Mariner's bullet wound is still there and still visible. I did notice that. I appreciated that, especially because his bullet wound isn't really evident in any other way. He's doing a lot of strenuous movements and not behaving like he has an abdomen wound <laughs> at all. I guess they didn't forget about it completely. When the Mariner gets to the top of the railing, he peeks over, sees everybody running around, doesn't really do much. But in the book, there is a bit more happening up on the deck. So the Mariner has reached the railing and he is peeking through a hole in the metal. Through it, he could now see smokers, perhaps a hundred of them or even more, fanning out on either side of the deck in two ungainly groups, pulling a thick, heavy rope between them tight as if they were playing a big bizarre game of what the ancients had called tug-of-war. And they didn't seem to have seen the Mariner's head pop up over the side of the ship. They had been busy, distracted by their mission. And what that mission was soon became clear to the Mariner as that purring engine sound built into a roar above and behind him. The Mariner, still hanging there, looked up and saw, half invisible as it emerged from the fog, the same battered seaplane that he and his trimaran had battled not so long ago. Clutching rust holes, he clung to the bow, making himself small as the plane swooped down, thundering in right over the Mariner and down onto the deck, slamming into and rattling the world. 
Through his peak hole, the mariner watched as the plane's pylons were snagged by the rope, the smokers grunting and groaning and yelling as they strained to slow the airship, the rope sliding burningly through their hands as they were moved in a mass with the still-moving plane. Then, a few yards from the bridge of the ship, the plane and its smoker landing crew finally came to a screeching stop, the men tumbling and bumping into each other but whooping with glee now. Another successful smoker landing. Wow. It had not even occurred to me how high the cost of using that seaplane was. Because every time that plane comes back, that's what they have to do. Yep. That's a lot to ask. It is a lot to ask. You would think that they would mock up some sort of way to secure that rope to something that wasn't human hands. From what we see of the ship, the ship might not be able to handle that much pressure. It almost reminds me of the Ewoks from Star Wars Return of the Jedi when they try to trip up one of those ATST chicken walkers <laughs> and the Ewoks end up getting dragged along the forest floor. Yes. And so you can imagine all of these smokers standing there with the rope, ready to go, holding it taut, thinking that they can stop it really easily this time and then just getting thrown from their feet and dragged along the deck. As the plane comes to a stop. I do wonder about past landings and past failures. They do seem happy that they have another successful, but that doesn't mean they've always been successful. <laughs> so what happens when they're not? Well, they've clearly learned from experience. The question is, how many planes have they gone through? Yeah. And how many times have they had to completely rebuild the plane because they let it slide too far? Now, the book does something interesting that the movie does not. The movie consolidates things and shows the deacon beginning his speech as the mariner is still making his way into the boat. The book, on the other hand, splits it up so that the mariner does a lot of his moving around, his taking out of scouts and infiltrating the ship before the deacon ever leaves his statehouse. As the deacon passes through his beaded curtain here up on the bridge, I have to jump forward a bit to find the instance where he appears before his adoring crowd. From the bridge of the D's, the mass of smokers on deck below made a throng whose behavior was as unruly as their personal grooming habits. Yelling, jostling each other, this was a mob on edge, joyful at the prospect of reaching dryland, a notion fueled by the rumors of a girl with a map on her back, and Scuttlebutt had it that the girl was a captive on this ship at this very moment, but also restless, tense, tired of empty promises and hopeful hearsay, as even these dimwits knew that supplies on the Ds were growing short. The only ammo they had was courtesy of melting down their own walls, and atolls were getting scarcer than magazines. Still, as their leader climbed the metal stairway to the bridge of the Ds, they erupted in wild, enthusiastic cheers that rose up to meet their smiling leader as surely as the smell of their collective, and considerable, body odor. <laughs> His colorful finery seemed to ignite them further. Gasoline splashed on their fiery enthusiasm. The deacons, smiling modestly, waved at them, first as a greeting, then encouraging them to silence. Standing before a microphone backed up by the dock and his smoker council, his words booming out not only here on deck, but through every corridor and compartment, the deacon began to preach. What I got from the movie, and also from what you read in the book, is that... Yes, these are his people, and they are adoring, but they are not blindly following him. 
we see in the movie, there is a smoker who takes the opportunity to call out the deacon. <laughs> and everybody hears him and agrees with him. And the deacon doesn't punish him. If he was a Morton Joe, a Morton Joe would have killed him. But I don't think the deacon has such a stranglehold on his people. He doesn't necessarily have to because they are so literally confined. Mm -hmm. One smoker is not enough to lead a full rebellion. And the deacon knows that. He is able to ply his smokers with enough cigarettes and cans of smeat. Yeah. That he doesn't need to worry about an uprising. The doctor is there with a bag of smeat cans and the deacon can throw them one at a time, or he can pull in a Morton Joe and just toss the whole bag out at once. I was blown away by comparing this scene to the scene in Fury Road where we first meet Morton Joe. The up high, the sermon nature of the speech, the handing out of goods in such a poor manner. <laughs> the comparisons were really, really obvious. In regards to the smeat, the cans... I did like that the first couple, the first like two, he was like, yeah, here you go. And he threw them one by one. Never actually taking any effort to throw them in different places in the crowd to make sure that the wealth was spread. And then did he get bored of that? I was like, here, just give me the bag. And he just dumped the whole bag over the side. It was so nonchalant. It was so he does not care about these people because he doesn't care about these people. And that doesn't matter to them. Because they just need food. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing he didn't step up to the microphone and tell them not to become addicted to canned meat. Because it'll take hold of them and they will resent its absence. <laughs> yes. I'm just very impressed by the structural integrity of these cans of smeat. Sure, production-wise, when we see them hitting the deck, it's not like they've been dropped hundreds of feet from the bridge of this ship. But when you see them bounce off the deck, they're still intact. They don't burst open. They don't dent horribly. And people are able to grab them mostly intact. Yeah, I think for the most part, canned food is incredibly durable. When you're at the grocery store and you see the shelf full of the dented cans and whatnot, there's not usually very many of them. And there's a reason. Because mm -hmm. that just doesn't happen. They're incredibly structurally sound. The main thing you've got to watch out for as far as cans are concerned are cans of cat food. That someone has gone in, pulled the tab, and opened up the can, and then left it in the back of the shelf. That happened several times in the supermarket where I worked as a teenager. <gasps> I've never heard of that before. We'd, that is horrible. We would be going through the aisles at the end of the night, and we'd smell something, and we'd have to go through and hunt on the shelf. Okay, <gasps> where is the open can that someone just left? Oh my gosh, that's horrific. Okay, I worked at a grocery store stocking, too, for like a year or so. And that never happened. The theatrical version of this scene ends right as the Mariner is getting over the railing and hiding behind what looks to be a shipping container. I also appreciate the detail, as far as the D's is concerned, that the edges of the ship are lined with the shipping containers. They seem to be offering extra fortification or maybe even places to stay for these smokers. But in this instance, they are providing a place for the Mariner to peek out of. I appreciate the inclusion of this scene because not only do we get to see the skyboat getting refilled, we didn't see it land in the movie, we're just seeing it get filled with gas in this shot, but we also get to see the pipe up from the deck that leads down into the fuel preserves. So we get a hint, skyboat's going to be involved later, 
and also an explanation of why the Mariner knows exactly where to go in order to blow up this ship. And while these types of moments do feel expositional, I don't mind them because I'd rather know that the Mariner saw this information earlier when he was appropriately scouting things out than later when he needs this information that he just magically knows where something is. Plus, I really like the idea of them having a pump that they use in conjunction with this thing, and it's sitting in an old shopping cart. Shopping carts are so useful. They are. Like, it's a basket on wheels. (laughs) It's excellent. It's a fun little detail that they've appropriated so many different things to use for any sort of thing here in the post-apocalypse. It's that post-apocalyptic ingenuity that I really enjoy seeing. There was a line in the opening of one of the Mad Max movies, I think it was Road Warrior, something about the ones who could scavenge are the ones who survived. Mm -hmm. Something like that. If they were mobile and could scavenge. Yes. They lived. I was not crazy about the one smoker who is at the end of the tube, the one that feeds it into the plane, because he gets a huge mouthful of fuel. And I understand that with those type of pumps, you've got to prime them. There's got to be liquid moving through them already before they can really start pumping efficiently. But just how much fuel spills out of that hose into his mouth, it's almost like he only needed to suck on the end of that tube until the fuel got to the pump, and then he could have stopped. But he just didn't realize it had gotten to that point yet, and no one warned him. And so he's standing there, ready to throw it into the gas cap, and it just all over his face. And you can see how dirty and gross it is. Like, how this is functioning fuel, I do not know. It's mud. It's so gross. It's sludge. I do appreciate that the guy who's doing the sucking, there is a man standing next to him and, like, below him, who's got his hand on the gas sucker's back. I like to think that this is a person who cares about the gas sucker. And he was like, are you okay? (laughs) No, he's not okay. None of them are okay. Right. Like, I am here for you. Are you okay? Do you need me? (laughs) I really appreciate that. It feels like a moment of humanity. I don't know what's actually going on, but that's what's going on in my head. And I'm going to stick with it. What I always find funny is that walking by the skyboat is a very tall smoker. He's got a big old gun. And he's walking around as if he's there to protect the plane. And it makes me wonder, do the smokers need to protect themselves from themselves? Or is he just thinking, oh, I'm going to patrol just in case we have anybody sneak aboard and try and wreck things? Or are there trouble elements people need to be kept away from the skyboat? I see who you're talking about, and I feel like he's there to protect the skyboat from the people. And yeah, it just seems odd. They're all members of the same community. They all have shared goals. And yet there is still this guy there thinking, I need to protect this asset. I think even in this society that is so rowdy, I guess is the word (laughs) for Rowdy is a good word for it. Yeah, Yeah. that there is still some sense of order and people being put in their place. Yeah, there's an authority. There's a pecking order and the general rabble are not to go near the skyboat. The last thing we hear on this week's clip is the deacon. He is standing up at the microphone and he says, children, children of the provider. And we end this week on a close-up of the deacon. Come back next time. Deacon will do his best to inspire the rabble 
the Mariner will dive bomb a pair of smokers, and Smitty will get in the way. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tuohy, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 69. We'll see you next time.